That's how you build rivalries, and that's how you build atmosphere. Edwards, three-pointer, is good! This team is right there with anybody else in, in the country. They are clicking on a kind of a different level that we didn't um, that we didn't see this year. Perry for the lead. Oh! He did it again. This is a personnel issue. Ish. I think I really think it's just a, a player fit. Like I I think, and it again, is. this is this is partially his fault, right? These are his transfers yes. that he brought in, right? But I'm still saying I think this is just a whiff. I think this is just a whiff on you his part. You can't, you can't, it, you cannot whiff with this much talent. And I love Texas Tech. This is home. And I get to stay home. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Texas 24 podcast on the Dave Campbell's Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Bruni, and joining me once again is Ishmael Johnson. Ish, how are you doing reporting live from uh, Big 12 Media Days? Well, reporting live from my living room, but I'm going to go off to Media Days uh, after after we finish recording. But uh, feeling good. We're back after a couple weeks off. You know, thought, thought we'd, uh, I was on vacation, and then uh, I was on vacation, to take a little... too. I was in Texas. I had my little Texas trip. There so. you go. So, um, yeah, we're back, we're back, though. Yeah, we're back. We're back. And we are joined today uh, by Andrew Hattersley from Gigum 24-7. Uh, Andrew, how are you doing, man? Good, good. Yeah, no, July is kind of, it feels like that time to get your vacations in before before the high school football season's right around the corner. And then we're into, then we're into basically everything. Basketball and football all gets rolling at once. And it feels like the next break's in, in May. So exactly. happy to be on here. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, man, no, no problem. Like you said, the next break is basically from August through May. We're basically booked, so yeah, um, yeah we're going around the state, um, talking to different beat writers. And Texas A and M is a fascinating program at this point with with Buzz Williams, uh, kind of now hitting his stride. It looks like uh, twenty seven and thirteen overall, ninety nine in the SEC, and the second best conference in the country. And it was a very real streaky year. That's what I've written down and how to describe the year. I think that's a, a safe word. Uh, the non-conference schedule wasn't too difficult. They got through those. A couple of losses, I think it was to Wisconsin TCU. Um, start off SEC play 4-0, lose eight straight, and then and then end it 9-9. So they go from 4-0 to 4-8 to 9-9, and then made the SEC championship game, and then made the NIT championship game. So, I mean, just how would you describe this last year as a whole? Man, it was just a roller coaster. Like it was, um, you know, I, I, I think from players to staff to media, everybody was just kind of exhausted at the end of the year because there just been so many highs and lows. I mean, even looking, you look at that four and zero start, and then um, game five was Kentucky coming to Reed Arena, and was kind of that night that was absolutely sold out. It was a nuts night at Reed Arena and AM was leading late in the second half and kind of let that lead slip away. But you kind of had that feeling of, okay, well, where was that team really going to go if they had beaten Kentucky and, you know, kind of taken off the, then they kind of had that close loss to LSU where LSU was banged up and it kind of felt like the chance to yeah. maybe sneak a game on the road. They lost a game in overtime to Arkansas. And then, you know, they just went on a bit of a tailspin, but um, finished the year with winning f uh, five out of their last six. They they lost the game at Vanderbilt, 
and then just went on a run in the SEC tournament. And we're probably as hot as any team in the in the country to close out the year. Obviously got wins in the SEC tournament against Auburn and Arkansas. And I think folks kind of felt at that point, regardless of what happened in the championship game, A&M was going to find a way to sneak into the tournament. It obviously didn't happen and didn't look like they were actually that close in the end to actually getting in. Mm-hmm. But um, I think fans were at least excited to see where this program's going with some young players that they can now, that they managed to keep. They, you know, kept a lot of guys and there was a lot of turnover last year. Um, and so to have some stability heading into this year, I think that's, kind of what fans were hoping for and then to add some players in the portal it i think the last year has been it been kind of a roller coaster but i think the program's in a better spot now than it was this time last year what was kind of <clears throat> heading into the year you know you mentioned the stability i guess for me i was completely baffled as to what to expect from this team this year you know you lose emmanuel miller in the portal and you kind of I know, I know Buzz Williams had talked about like bringing in more his guys and like, you know, you lose um, Savion Flag as well. And so like, there were like guys who key contributors, at least the guys you would thought would have been key contributors to this team off. But now Buzz Williams kind of has more or less his quote unquote, his guys in what was kind of the expectation? Cause I was like, I thought this would be a bottom SEC team heading into the year, maybe a year away from being, you know, pushing for that uh, title or something, uh, or at least being stable. Um, and then they come out and they look really good. And they look like I remember there was after the Wisconsin and Butler games, I was texting Bruni like I think A and M's actually pretty good. Um, I just I could not refuse to believe it. He, he refused to believe, but I was like, I was like, they're one of the two. They're one of the teams where it's like they're not. Their record's not incredible. Their schedule's not incredible. But I'm like, I feel like this is a good team. So I don't know yeah. what was the expectation just heading in. I'm just like what what's the end up getting? There was so much unknown because you're right. I mean the. Losing Emmanuel Miller really hurt. I think that was mm-hmm. a guy that they really built or built around. Um, and, you know, there were so many unknown question marks coming into the year. I mean, Henry Coleman was a really highly touted player coming out of high school. He was a top 50 player coming out of high school, but really didn't do a whole lot his first year at Duke. And so you really didn't know kind of what you had there. Um, I think there was a lot of optimism about how you would fit in, you know, giving him extended minutes. And some worked better than others. I think they... You know, Ethan Henderson's a guy they thought, man, with the, you know, skill set and what he did in the NCAA tournament, giving him extended minutes, we think we have something there. I think he ended up being okay. I think he ended up being serviceable as as kind of a big man and defender. And But, you know, he didn't really provide much on the glass. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think they were optimistic, um, especially having a guy like Quentin Jackson back. And there was actually a lot of excitement around Marcus Williams, too, and and you know, just him being able to settle. I think he ended up struggling just at the SEC level, struggled with turnovers a lot. And, um, but you know, the one guy that, that really, I think kind of was key to the second half run was Tyrese Radford. And Mm -hmm. they felt like he was just a perfect Buzz Williams type guy that was just going to, you know, be able to get on the glass and play good defense and maybe hit a few shots. And I think he ended up exceeding all expectations that they had for him going into his first year because he was second in scoring at Virginia Tech. So I think they felt like, you know, as a, as kind of a late summer ad, I think they added him in like late July, early August to be able to add a guy like that late in the summer felt like, you know, okay, now this roster is starting to kind of look the way we want it to look. Um, you know, a guy like Wade Taylor, I think kind of surprised them a little bit. 
um, Manny Obasaki, um, you know, the second half that he kind of had. I think everybody kind of felt like, okay, this is probably an NIT team that could maybe mm-hmm. challenge for an NCAA tournament. Um, and that's kind of in a backwards way, the way it ended up playing out. Um, I don't think there were illusions about this is going to be a, like a sweet 16 team or anything like that. Yeah. I think folks just sure. wanted to kind of see that step and, um, you know, an interesting roster strategy that uh, kind of went into, you know, some of those changes that were made with like Jonathan Aku leaving and some of those other guys that, you know, they completely overhauled the roster mm-hmm. is in the era of the transfer portal. They wanted to actually add guys that had used their year of, their free transfers so that they could get them in the program and have mm. stability of, you know, a bunch of guys that had, you know, could, they could kind of build around and, and try to have a stable, stable roster that way. And so um, I think they were looking two years down the line and, and maybe we're a little ahead of the head of the schedule with, with the way everything went last year. Yeah. Looking on the court real quick, because obviously we've, we cover all the teams in Texas. We've talked about Texas a a lot. And there was never that one player where you're like, all right, this is this is the dominant player for Texas A&M, right? Uh, in fact, yeah. I just was looking through the stats last night. You know, one player averaged over 27 minutes per game. That was Tyrese Radford. Uh, 11 different players started a game last year. Uh, no one averaged over 15. Like, it's just all these stats that show how many different contributors they had. And if you just go down the roster, obviously they all played different roles, but it's like, all right, this guy's contributor, contributor, contributor. Like you just go down the list. What was that like covering, you know, a team that had that much diversity and what, what would you hear from the coaching staff? Was that a plan going in or was, how'd that play out? It was interesting because I, I, I think they wanted to cut down the roster to eight, nine guys by the time sec play came around. Um, it actually ended up working in their favor in that Notre Dame game um on the back on the final day of the uh you know the the thanksgiving tournament they played because they just they went at notre dame with like 12 guys doing a half court trap over and over again and notre dame at that point was playing like a seven-man rotation Mm -hmm. and so playing for the third day in a row they just totally wore down notre dame and forced them into a bunch of turnovers and got out in the open court and i think that's kind of what this team this year's team is going to look like as well is they're going to play 10 or 11 guys. It's probably going to look very similar actually to last year. I I think Henry Coleman's and Terry Stradford are obviously the guys they want to build around, but you're going to see guys cycle in off the bench, the Julius Marbles, the Anderson Garcia, some of these other guys. Um, and, you know, the coaching staff kind of did talk about last year was tough because part of it was like inconsistency. Like they would turn to a guy, he'd be really yeah. good one game. And then the next game they'd be like, okay, five minutes of nothing. Okay. Let's try somebody <laughs> else. And so they just continue to cycle through guys. And I think they, they were kind of in that same boat. Like, okay, can we find five guys that we can roll with? Yeah. And they, you know, they were kind of just testing roster combos all year long. And then they kind of settled into that starting lineup they had at the end of the year with Wade Taylor, Manny Obasaki, Quentin Jackson, Radford, and Coleman. And they were like, all right, we find our five guys that are playing well consistently, consistently and rolled with it. But it was hard because, yeah, there was just so many guys. And you had, you know, Hayden Hefner stepped out in certain games. Andre Gordon did. It was just so many guys that you're right. It kind of did have that feeling of they were just going to roll guys off the bench and just kind of try to beat you with numbers. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the two freshmen um, because they were two guys who, especially Manny, like 
Well, well, first, Wade Taylor, I thought he was a revelation midseason. I was, I was really curious to see how quickly he'd catch on, and it really became clear that, oh, they trust him to run that offense. And like it's, it's, it was kind of interesting to see him. But the thing with, the thing with Manny Hoseki was at times you were like, there's something there. And then like he kind of had that chaos factor to him where it was like I, he doesn't yeah. know exactly what his role is right now, but they're clearly just like we need you to get minutes because we need you to figure it out. And by the end of the year, it looked like he was like, okay, they trust him to play 15, 20, 30 minutes yeah. a game, you know, um, towards the end of the month. Those two guys specifically, you know, what you see from them over the course of the year. So I kind of had the suspicion that Wade Taylor was going to be a guy that could contribute early. I obviously go out to a lot of high school games and I do kind sure. of the bas- the high school basketball recruiting and the, and the team. And so – um, I kind of suspected Wade Taylor as a guy that could come in. He his confidence is sky high, and you know he, mm-hmm. if if they could kind of dial it back a little bit, which I think they've mm-hmm. kind of got him in like the right role now. Like he he was kind of a gunslinger in high school in terms of mm-hmm. you know threes and transition and behind the back passes and all this sort of stuff. You saw that the like the the playmaking and the speed was was definitely there. Um, as for Manny Obasaki, I think they they loved his length and they kind of looked at him as like, you know, he's obviously got like some pro potential. Like he's got plenty of pro potential and, and you know, the size and the frame and the athleticism is all there. I think they knew like there's going to be some development there. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think that's also why they wanted to bring in some veteran guards was they didn't want to – They I think they kind of knew it might take a little bit of time with him. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, one of the questions at the SEC tournament when they were coming kind of off the, the rough year was, oh, well, you know, you got Wade Taylor and Manny Obasaki coming in. And Buzz Williams was like, let's we're not going to put everything on the shoulders of two freshmen and expect them to be saviors. And right. so with Manny Obasaki, I think he started to kind of, you know, get a better feel for the offense, get a better feel for what type, what are the right shots for him? What should he be doing? Um, and I thought he got more aggressive too as the year got along. He tried to get to the free throw line more. He, he, uh, you know, he he looked to create for himself and was. I, I thought he was more assertive, um, but he's always been good defensively and and great athleticism can be an impact guy on the glass. I just I, I thought he got more assertive the second half of the year, and I think that's mm-hmm. when you start to see him become more comfortable and. Um, but work ethic is off the charts. I think they they know he's just going to continue to kind of be on this upward climb, and you know I think they're they're really excited about those two guys. Yeah, I, I have two questions. The first one being yeah uh, that I obviously also run twenty four seven help run a twenty four seven site and, and have message boards to deal with. Uh, I can only imagine what it was like during the the losing streak. Uh, just how would you describe? what the what what was being said uh in the pg version <laughs> on the message board during the eight game losing skid yeah i you 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 know uh you know well what it's like to deal with it was it was it was rough because i i even got to a point where people were like will you please stop doing like live updates right that's what it like, turns into it's like, <laughs> that's what it's even the point because lsu was streaky as hell too yeah. last year it's just like no one's gonna read this. It's like I'm just doing my job, please. Yeah, I'm I'm just doing my job. I'm keeping people informed. And there's like, you know, some people it was kind of an echo chamber at certain points of the first couple of years. And you know, people would be like, please stop posting these. Like we all know how this is gonna go. Like they 
they they they played South Carolina at the end of January. They had a junior day where they brought all the football guys over, and Aiden went on like a twelve minute drought, scoring wise. And I was like, okay, this this message board is going to be a <laughs> message board is going to be a nightmare. I just, just stop reading. They, they they were like, I think people are like, I'm just going to come back and see like what what happens at the end, and yeah. you know, it was it was tough, but. Um, I think people appreciated the coverage. It was still there and, you know, the inside. And I think there was just a sense of frustration like this. We're in year three now, and this program's like doesn't seem to be taking the step forward that we thought it was going to take. And I think I think that was the general consensus. Um, Luckily, all focus always turns to football at like a certain quickly at at certain points if things are going bad. So that's kind of where things turn and baseball was starting around that time. So. I just kind of like lost my 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 group of people that were in there, and uh, but it got better over the course of time. Yeah, for sure. And then the second part, kind of going into what you said, um, just based on obviously Buzz Williams, you know, three years there, and what you know about him and what he wants to do there. How much was the runs and to close the season? How much was that kind of what he envisioned as far as you know the defense? getting significantly better um obviously finding that five-man rotation how much from a style perspective from an attitude perspective from a team perspective how much of that was what buzz williams kind of envisioned i think that's exact like that last part of the season was exactly kind of how he envisioned i i kind of told people about this before too but when you look at even his first year at a&m they went on a run to end the year and they were on a mm-hmm. same sort of hot streak and then obviously the SEC tournament got canceled um, and that team never really got a chance. That team could have gone frankly on a similar run to the one that this, this past team went on. And so, you know, I think a and kind of a team that come like, you know, they're going to be a work in progress in November and December. It wouldn't be surprising this year to see them. Pe- people be like, man, four or five starters back. Where are like, where it wouldn't be a surprise to see them kind of be in the same mold. It might help to have four starters back, but they're like a team when you get to like late January, mid February and into March, that seems to be when they're kind of playing their best in terms of everybody's bought into, you know, playing defense that it starts on defense and, you know, they kind of feed off of everything they do defensively. And so they're a team um, and, you know, it in a way, and I know this name it gets is now now around LSU country is isn't is, is no go, but they they kind of like to play in a similar style to Will Wade, and that they want to get after you defensively and force turnovers and get out and transition, and that's so that's that's kind of the way I think that they they want to be able to play and and you know they want to be able to switch guys and play with four four guards on the floor and and be quick, but. Um, I think yeah, the the second half of the year was much closer to where they wanted to be. When I guess for me, when it came to Buzz Williams and like fan base expectation, were there any like, especially with the how the, the conference play went at one point, were there any ever like ske- uh, skeptics about like whether or not he was actually pretty safe? Because I know it was such a home run hire. I still think it was the right hire at the time. Yeah. And then the first season went, obviously, like you mentioned, ended really well, didn't get to finish that out. 
last year, or I guess, I guess now two years ago, did not go well at all. And then he kind of turns the roster over. Was there any ever, or was it just like, what did he have the full backing of A&M to be like, look, if, you, if this year doesn't go exactly the way it needs to be, you're kind of okay until next year, regardless. Yeah, from an A&M perspective, they they backed them. And, and um, you know, Ross Bjork kind of talked about, he does like an Aggie town hall and and people kind mm -hmm. of asked him about, and it's just a monthly thing where he takes questions from fans and somebody asked him about the basketball program. And he said, listen, this, this was before the run, but he said, listen, this year is not, you know, going at this point the way we would hope it to. But, you know, he, he, he understood Buzz Williams plan of, okay, I mm -hmm. want to get a roster in here of guys that I can develop. They're really in a hard develop, a developmental program. And so he kind of understood, okay, I've got Henry Coleman, you know, here for a couple more years. Tyrese Radford is here for a couple more years. I think he understood that, you know, there was going to be a development aspect to it. And I think they, I think they were happy with what they saw, even the, if the results weren't showing up on the court, there were a lot of close losses in there mm -hmm. um, that I think the staff kind of looked like, okay, how do we find that next gear? How do we find that next level? And there's still things that they want to do. It's not, you know, perfect. I think they they want to find a way to make Reed more of a you know lively environment. It's it you know it it got better during the NIT tournament, but they 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 don't have like the rocking atmosphere that some other like places around around the SEC have. And so I think they're still looking at okay, how do we make Reed more of a home court advantage? How do we do some of those sorts of things? And so it was a little bit what was going on in the court, but then it was also hmm. like as an administration, we've also got things that we need to do to, you know, kind of help create more of a read arena environment. Sure. Yeah. Um, as we look ahead to this year, the turnover, um, the players that I have departing, Quentin Jackson, who graduated, Aaron Cash, Hassan Diara, and Marcus Williams all entered the transfer portal. And then the additions from the portal, uh, Julius Marble uh, from Michigan State, Anderson Garcia from Mississippi State, uh, K.K. Robinson from Arkansas, and uh, Dexter Dennis from Wichita State. Is that, yeah. is that correct? Yep, that's correct. And so, I mean, the Dexter Dennis one starting there, I mean, the uh, the Anderson Garcia and, and Julius Marble ones came on like back-to-back -back days and on, on an official visit. And I, I think all have a chance to really, really contribute early on. I think Dexter Dennis is a guy that probably rounds out their starting five. Um, it was huge to add him, especially with Quentin Jack. That was kind of the big question. Okay. A&M's losing Quentin Jackson. What's going to be kind of, how do they replace him? And Dexter Dennis feels like the perfect guy defensively has tons of experience playing at a high level um, can score a little bit, um, but he was in the AAC player def defensive player of the year last year. And so, you know, he's going to be a guy that can, can probably go up against an opponent's best player um, and make an instant impact. And then KK Robinson with Marcus Williams leaving. I think that was pretty much the writing was kind of on the wall there that he was probably going to be leaving in the off season. Um, he took a leave of absence, probably with like two to three weeks to go in the season when they went to Ole Miss, he, he took a, uh, a leave for personal reasons. And, and you could kind of feel that he probably wasn't going to be returning. Um, and so KK Robinson probably fills in that backup point guard role behind Wade Taylor. And, you know, a guy that, talking to you I, I know you know curtis wilkerson over on our arkansas mm -hmm. site we had him on for a, 
a Q&A about K.K. Robinson. And, you know, he's battled some injuries and maybe wasn't fully healthy last year. And, you know, getting a healthy K.K. Robinson, I think he can be a pretty impactful guy. Julius Marble is from Dallas originally. And so being able to come back home and play play close to family um, should be a guy off the bench that can make an impact. And then Anderson Garcia is just super long and actually had a career game against A&M in the regular season finale, which is not a bad scouting opportunity. Yeah, to kind of like, All right, there we go. <laughs> Come on over. We'll get you after the season. I think he had like 16 points or something like that. And just a, a huge breakout game. And so just a long athletic, like kind of a wing guy that um, I think can, can be a impactful rebounder off the bench. Now, when you look at expectations for this year, I know it's still early. I know it's July 14th, but um, a lot of people are going to have them pretty high in the SEC. Obviously, the SEC is a very, very good conference. Arkansas, Kentucky go down the list. Um, I, when you look at the expectations here, is it 10 and eight in the SEC? Is that, is that where we're starting expectations at or more less? I think somewhere in the 10, 11 win range would be, would be pretty fair. I think the SEC is going to be pretty tough again this year. Yes. And so, you know, if you look at last year, um, there were like, what, five teams that finished nine and nine, I think it was, or four and yeah, five, four LSU or five teams. That, yeah. And yeah. LSU, LSU was a team that had as much talent as anybody, but it was just kind of like, okay, what night is, is it going to actually kind of click? Yeah. And, you know, the top of the conference is still really, really good with, Alabama and Tennessee and Kentucky Auburn. and all the Auburn and Arkansas. all those guys, Arkansas. It's just like a deep, deep conference. And so yeah. I think 10 and eight um, people would be pretty happy with maybe 11, seven. Um, but I think the feeling is this is probably a team if they can get, you know, I know the kind of the thing was last year. Okay. If we can get to nine and nine in conference play, like feel, feel like this is a tournament team that obviously didn't happen, but 10 and 8, 11 and 7, and probably getting like this. This feels like the year this team breaks through and gets to the NCAA tournament. The uh, non conference schedule is a little more challenging heading into this year. Say, so. they, they need that because last year you, you didn't <laughs> yeah. have those marquee wins. So they've they've got home and home series scheduled with DePaul and Memphis. We'll see how DePaul is. Um, but Memphis feels like that's a game that could be, uh, game. you know, a nice, a nice rpi bump especially since it's on the road um and then you know we'll see about their non-conference tournament i know it it probably isn't going to get everybody very excited with loyola and boise state and some of those schools but you know those those are the schools that somehow end up with a a high net at the end of the year and you can kind of sneak a quad one quad two win out of it and so um you know i think i think the expectation is probably 10 and 8 with the understanding like this is just a you know looking at the looking at the schedule they've got to go to to kentucky this year obviously have the two against lsu um host tennessee that's not going to be easy host auburn so the home games aren't going to be easy but also some opportunities to kind of get in front of your home crowd and Mm -hmm. and and maybe pick off a couple wins yeah i'm wondering when you look at i don't know i've always found it interesting that you know obviously fans want good non-conference schedules but i'm like i don't know unless you're kentucky i guess this year at arkansas or whatever like if you're in the sec i don't think you should be scheduling anybody non-conference stuff like yeah. i don't i don't like if you're outside of the top two or three it's like you're gonna have enough to deal with later for basically I, like 50 percent of the year 
I kind of understood it last year, especially with when you look at that team. And I know, like, so there were some bad breaks for AM, right? Like, sure, if sure. you look at the if you look at the the way they're scheduled, and I try to kind of point this out to people, and I know Buzz Williams and I'm sure other coaches have dealt with this before that you know the SEC has their you know rule rule that you have to hit 150 on the net for non-conference okay. schedule. Oregon State had gone to the Elite Eight the year before. They schedule <laughs> yeah. a road game at Oregon State, and Oregon State's like one of the worst teams in college basketball like last year. year. Yeah, they won like two games all. There is no way you could have predicted that at the beginning of the year that a team was going to go. They probably looked at that and were like, all right, that team's an Elite Eight team last year. You know, went on a run, sure. Yeah. I don't think anybody saw them going two and 28 last year and, and how that season just turned into a nightmare. And so that's like, you know, that game probably would have helped like non-conference. They Tulane had COVID issues at the end of the uh, schedule and they couldn't find a game. They just felt like they needed a game before the SEC started. So that's mm-hmm. how Dallas Christian got on the schedule because they were just like, we need to play anybody. And that game ended up being like 100 to 40 or whatever it was. And people kind of looked at it like, really? We couldn't get anything better than that. But in like late December, like trying to just scramble in a two-week frame to get a team to play, like, you know, and then Butler ended up being very mediocre. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they I think if there was one game they wish they could have got back, it was that Wisconsin game early in the year where they raced out to kind of a 17 to 5 lead, I think they led. And then Mm – went into one of those offensive droughts and, you know, but it's, it's, it's one of those things. I think last year's team needed kind of some time to to gel and group and groove. I think heading into this year, A&M kind of looks and, and feels like we can take this team into Memphis and compete early yeah. in the year. And we can take this team on the road to DePaul. And I think Tony, St- I think I used to go to, I went to DePaul and, you know, covered that team for a couple of years. And I really do think Tony Stubblefield is going to, do good things for that program. Um, and that's going to be a tougher game than probably people think right now. But um, that team's just desperate for – that city's just desperate for that program to be good. And so I think, you know, that's going to have some buzz around it. But, um, you know, I'm with you. I think if with the way you play in the SEC, just use it for wherever you feel like your team needs to be best prepared to go into the SEC. Because if you're at 500 or better in the SEC – you're probably in pretty good shape, yeah. um, barring you don't have an eight-game losing streak in the middle of it. Right. Yeah. No. I, I mean, heck, LSU was ninety-nine and got a six seed last year. Yeah. I mean, and this is how it goes. I think it's because they Ten- beat Kentucky. Tennessee was uh, won the SEC tournament and they get what a they were a three seed, I think. Yeah, three. Now seed, they didn't I end know. up. They didn't end up validating any of their gripes. Yeah, but- I know. They probably had an argument to be. I thought that was one of the better teams last year. And Mm -hmm. you're right. Like LSU gets a six seed out of it and, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of got a good break. So, yeah, that's what, yeah, all the the Ken Palms and uh, all the metrics loved LSU last year. That was was the difference. It was like, yeah, these guys are number one in defense. And then they're like them. They they, they play good defense, play a tough schedule. Yeah. Got them. And then Wade got fired and it just what'd you do? Anyways, um <laughs> all right. So we'll get you out of here on some women's basketball questions. Yeah. Um obviously a change at the head coaching position, Joni Taylor now in. 
Uh, what's the fan base been saying uh, about the change? Does it feel necessary? Is there excitement? Just what's the overall vibe of the women's basketball program right now? I think everybody kind of sensed it was probably time. And, um, you know, Gary Blair kind of let everybody know before the year, obviously, that he was going to be retiring. And so last year had very much a farewell season aspect to it. But to be able to go pick a coach out of the SEC who had – you know, who had just played in the NCAA tournament. I think people have been pretty happy with Ross Bjork from that standpoint to, you know, Joni Taylor and that, you know, been back-to-back off seasons to pick, you know, Joni Taylor this off season and Jim Schlossnagel last off season. I think mm-hmm. people feel like, you know, he, he, he's bought himself some cred with that as well. And, you know, it helped that Joni Taylor, you know, pretty much brought her entire Georgia signing class with her, you know, Janiah Barker's a, a top 10 player in the country in the 2022 class, according to the ESPN rankings based bringing in three top 100 players. And uh, I think it was interesting listening to Gary Blair talk about it because um, when he talked about it at the end of the year and he didn't be Gary Blair's true class. And I think, you know, everybody kind of appreciates what he had done. He knew to put the program in the best spot moving forward last year, he was going to have to play a lot of young players and give them a chance to develop. Was that going to send him out on his best season? Probably not, but it was going to, you know, give those players a year of experience to move forward and, and hopefully, you know, kind of accelerate the rebuild. And so I think there's a lot of excitement about just what she was able to do. I think everybody kind of wants to see you, what she does on the court and, and, and what type of coach she is. But I think in general sense, there's, ex- there's excitement about where that program is. Yeah. Anything else ish? Uh, no, that's it, man. Um, yeah. I'm excited to see the women's program too. Like, uh, like you mentioned, the signing class she brought in is pretty damn good. Same. And it, it, it was kind of a, this last year was kind of a, for Gary Blair, kind of a, a weird, weird kind of like experience, but not experience enough kind of like you know they had some contributors from last year just kind of like a weird assortment of roster um yeah but i think it was i was good that he announced that he was leaving because it didn't like it didn't put the program in a weird spot they were able to move on really quickly and then as you mentioned like they were able to bring in a pretty damn good class on short notice <laughs> i mean they were pretty much kind of it what it gave and and russ bjork kind of talked about this too because uh obviously he had basically a whole year to plan for it and he said mm-hmm. it was nice because obviously he wasn't contacting people like throughout the season. He was just kind of, he, he said he took the first couple of months of the year to mm. just kind of get the lay of the landscape and figure out, okay, what coaches are attainable, what coaches are interested yeah. and almost get to scout them watching like a live game action because, you know, you get a whole season to basically watch them. And so that's kind of what they did with Joni Taylor is they could watch her and, you know, kind of lead that Georgia program and get a Georgia was damn good last year too. And Georgia was really good. And, um, you know, Georgia, um, obviously playing A&M and, and, you know, Joni Taylor got to come to Reed arena for that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think they kind of knew, okay, this is where we want to go. You know, this is the type of style that we want to play. And, you know, everybody kind of says in, in today's day and age, we want to play the interchangeable style and the, you know, all that switch and, and play be multi-positional. And so that was kind of her style, but, um, you know, it's, I think there's a lot of excitement and I think people just kind of felt like, okay, it's, it's, it's probably time for, for a change and, and a new voice. And, um, you know, Gary Blair will still be around the program and, and all that. So it, it kind of felt like a good transition. 
Yeah. Well, there we go. Uh, there's Texas A&M in a nutshell. Uh, Going to be a really exciting program, uh, both men's and women's, to, to cover this year. Andrew, we appreciate you coming on joining us. Yes, sir. Appreciate you guys having me. All right. Well, uh, y'all can subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, leave a like, share comments, all that stuff. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Hats. Um, we appreciate y'all for joining us, and we will talk to y'all later.